When I was a kid, sometimes we visited people who had a large family Bible on the living room coffee table. And very often when I opened these Bibles, I found on one of the very first pages a family tree. And in most cases, the blank spaces on the family tree had been filled in, listing great-great-grandparents, uncles, aunts, parents, siblings, and so on, right down to the family currently owning this family Bible. I'm not sure when that tradition began, but on page one of the New Testament, we also encounter a family tree. Matthew gives us Jesus' family tree. And it's an interesting tree, as we will see beginning today on Groundwork. Stay tuned. Welcome to Groundwork, where we dig into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Daryl Delaney. And I'm Scott Jose. And Daryl, this is the first episode of what will be a five-episode series that will center on the first 17 verses of Matthew 1. This is often used as an Advent and Christmas reflection, and that's how we're going to be using it, too. We'll have uh, four uh, sort of Advent programs and a Christmas program to cap it off. But to begin, let's uh, set the stage a little bit, Daryl. Why would Matthew choose to open his gospel the way he does? Well, I mean, if you look at it, it doesn't seem like a very exciting way to open a book. This doesn't have like a hook or an action mm-hmm. item or yeah. some some crescendo or something like that. It starts with the names of the people in the genealogy of Jesus. And so the so-and-so the father, so-and-so the father, so-and-so is not exactly the most exciting way to start a book, but there's intention behind it for Matthew. So as we see here in the first three verses, it says, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And it's going to keep going on like this. 14 more verses like that. And let's hang on to that name of Tamar from the end of verse 3 there, because that's going to be the focus of this program. So again, as you say, Daryl, what editor would let a novelist get away with opening a novel this way? I mean, they would say, no, 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 no. Uh, there's there's got to be kind of a MacGuffin. <laughs> there's got to be a... Setting. Yeah, yeah, something to hook the reader, because you only got a couple paragraphs, and if somebody isn't engaged, they're going to close the book. As a matter of uh, practice, Daryl, I suspect most of us, most of the time, we just actually begin reading Matthew at verse 18, (laughs) which is the the brief story of Joseph and the dream and the name of Emmanuel. But that's a mistake because Matthew knew what he was up to. So Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience and his idea and main theme of this book, if we study it correctly, he wants to show that Jesus is the coming and promised Messiah. Mm. And so he wants to show genetically that Jesus is the Davidic bloodline. So he traces it back to David and Abraham because he wants the people of Israel to understand because genealogy is extremely important in the history of Israel. Exactly. We think that maybe some of Matthew's readers, uh, we think he wrote to uh, Jews maybe in the city of Antioch, where there were a lot of synagogues in the ancient world and in Matthew's time in Antioch. We think some of Matthew's readers already have embraced Jesus as Messiah, but we think Matthew's trying to convince still other readers to embrace Jesus as Messiah. And if you want to get uh, people from Israel uh, to buy the idea that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, prerequisite number one is he has to be in the line of David. Right. You have to establish his credentials. And so you got to use a family tree to establish that King David was the great, 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 whatever grandfather of Jesus. So that's one of the things Matthew is up to. 
but it's not the only thing. So then also Matthew is trying to explain that not only is he the coming Messiah that is in the Davidic line, but the promise in Genesis 12 to Abram is that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through Abram. And so if you want to trace him back to Abraham, then you realize that this messianic gift who Christ is, is not just for the Jewish people, it's for the entire world. And so everyone who comes to believe and name in the name of Jesus Christ gets to be part of this bloodline spiritually speaking, this family. You know, uh, we've uh, on Groundwork, we've done a series on Jonah before. And one of the things we observe with Jonah is Jonah represented all Israel in the sense that he wanted God all to themselves. They wanted God to be only the God of the Israelites, not the God of the Ninevites or the Babylonians or the Egyptians or the Phoenicians. They wanted God all to himself. Jonah was written to shake Israel out of that insularity, but it doesn't work because by the time Jesus comes, we've got the religious establishment with the scribes and the Pharisees running everything. And it's still an insiders-only club. And there were even Jewish people in Jesus' day who weren't good enough for the Pharisees. So Matthew really wants to open it up to remind Israel that Jesus the Messiah is for more than just Israel. And the way Matthew does that, one of the ways, is he includes the names of four women, but not the four women who you might expect to see in a Jewish family tree. So the highlights, if you will, (laughs) would be Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Leah. They're all Jewish women. They're all Israelites. But these aren't the women that he picks. He picks women who originally were not Israelites. He's picking Tamar, who's a Canaanite. He's picking Rahab, the Jerichoite. He's picking Ruth, the Moabite. He's picking Bathsheba, who's originally married to Uriah, the Hittite. And so it's actually intentional that Matthew would pick these four women who are not part of the original bloodline of Israel until they were married in and that Jesus's bloodline is actually a beautiful mosaic of how there are different people coming in. Exactly. So it's a very clever way for Matthew to, uh, if you were a Jewish reader uh, of this uh, family tree, you would have been stopped dead in your tracks to read the names of Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and and Bathsheba uh, because A, family trees, you know, very patriarchal culture, usually only the men, right? The father of the father of the father of. So it's unusual to include the women's names, really unusual to include these names. So whereas we might regard this family tree as kind of boring, so we just skip down to verse 18, Jewish people would find this really interesting and maybe even a little scandalous. Wow, what are you doing? Uh, Including these foreigners. But what he's doing is trying to open up people's imaginations to see that Jesus, the Messiah, came from more than just Israel. But it's also kind of interesting, Daryl, that some of the stories, not Ruth's so much, but the stories of Tamar, Rahab, and Bathsheba, they have some, shall we say, interesting elements included. <laughs> That's a good way to put it, Scott. Mm-hmm. I don't think you want to teach those in Sunday school in great detail. I think that, you know, it's more of a Rated R is more of a serious situations of issues that we're going to get into with each of these stories. But I want to make sure that we don't make these women the problem or that they're the villains or that there's a reason why these things are going wrong. I just think it's important that God highlights that these stories are not pretty and neat stories and they're messy. And he includes them intentionally, doesn't hide them from us. And we can take pleasure in understanding that our stories are not that way either. And we want to talk about what Tamar's story would be in the next segment. So stay tuned.
what does it mean to be a Christian and a fan of movies, music, television, and video games? I'm Josh Larson, editor of thinkchristian.net and host of the Think Christian podcast. I invite you to join us for faith-filled reflections on pop culture. Visit us at thinkchristian.net or search for the Think Christian podcast, where we'll be talking about what it means to be a follower of Christ, even in the playful moments of our lives. I'm Scott Jose with Daryl Delaney. You're listening to Groundwork and this first program in the five-part Advent and Christmas series that we're going to center on Matthew 1 and the first 17 verses of the family tree of Jesus. And Daryl, we just established that Matthew includes the names of four women, none of whom were Israelites. So he's already suggesting to his readers to open up their minds to the idea that the Messiah came from more than just Israel. But some of these stories also have some other elements to them. And uh, the first person that's named at the end of verse 3, which we read in the previous part of the program, was Tamar. And that story, actually, we're going to get into here. But to give a little bit of context, it's kind of a parenthetical story because we started talking about Joseph in Genesis 37. And then what well, we're trying to figure out what's happening with him. He's getting sold into slavery into Egypt. And then they take his coat and all this stuff happens. And we're like hanging on the edge to find out what's going to happen with Joseph. And then it's like, OK, pause Joseph. And now we're going to introduce this story about Tamar, and then we'll pick back up with Joseph in, in chapter 39. So I don't know why it's set up that way, but it's in between right. Joseph's story. Yep, it seems like an interruption. I mean, at the end of Genesis 37, we're kind of on pins and needles. What's going to happen to Joseph? The last line is, meanwhile, you know, Joseph was sold to somebody named Potiphar. Oh, good. So then we go to 38. It's like, well, I'll what happens? Whoa, 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 whoa. Major timeout. We're going to talk about one of Joseph's brothers, Judah. And it's a little complicated to set this up, so we'll, we'll try to boil it down. But this story is told in Genesis 38. Before we even catch up on Genesis 38, let's remind ourselves, Gerald, there was this law in Israel, this tradition. You know, they had a lot arranged marriages in those days. And so if you had three or four sons, you would arrange for a marriage for your oldest son first. If something happens to him, if he dies, then the father of the family has to give that wife to the next son. And if something happens to him, the next son, and so on and so on until you're out of sons, I guess. So that was the tradition of how you took care of your daughter-in-law. Uh, you made sure she was taken care of by giving her to the next brother in line. So that's an important thing to remember because otherwise we're not going to understand the key dynamic of Genesis 38. So that's actually where we pick up because – I mean, after they have this thing with Joseph's brothers sell him into slavery, we go on to talk about Judah, and he lives with the Canaanites, and he met his wife, gave birth to three sons, Ur, Onan, and Shelah. And then Ur got married to a Canaanite woman named Tamar, which is what this chapter is about, Tamar's life. But when Ur died, then, I mean, apparently he was a wicked yeah. because God, he died immediately. And then, so the next in line is Onan. And then Onan, he marries her, but then he also didn't fare any better. He died as well. And then so Judah knew that Tamar needed to marry Shelah next. But obviously, I mean, in this passage, it wasn't the time because Shelah was young or too young or whatnot. Uh, that's what Judah said anyway, that Shelah was a little bit young. So he tells Tamar, just cool your jets, just wait a little bit. But then time went on and Judah actually doesn't do anything. Shelah maybe got old enough to be married, 
but he still doesn't give Tamar. Maybe Judas concluded Tamar's bad luck. I mean, he's lost two sons in a row who were married to Tamar. Maybe he thinks she's just bad luck, uh, and he doesn't want to lose Shayla too. But whatever, he fails. And so we read this now, starting at verse 12 in Genesis 38. His wife dies. Judah's wife dies. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah, to the men who were shearing his sheep. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's clothes and covered herself with a veil to disguise herself. And then she sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is the road to Timnah. For she saw that although Shela had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. So when Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute because she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over her to by the roadside and said, come now, let me sleep with you. What will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Well, wait, give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. What pledge shall I give you? Well, your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by Judah. And after she left, she took off her veil and put on her widow's clothes again. Oh, wow. This is not something that we're going to tell the kids. No, we I warned mean, you. It's not a Sunday school story. Now, why in the world would the author of Genesis put this in here? I mean, these circumstances on how she got pregnant, there's a lot of drama involved there. There's a lot of scandal involved. There's a deception even. Then this person, Tamar, is included in the line of David intentionally by Matthew with all this stuff happening. Uh, And the story goes on from there. Judah doesn't know who Tamar is. And in the story, she disappears. And he asks the people of Timnah, hey, where's that prostitute? And they said, what prostitute? There's no prostitute in this town. Mm, Well, okay, well, whatever. And he kind of forgets about it. But then we pick up the action at verse 24. It says, about three months later, Judah was told, hey, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I'm pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. So, dum-dum-dum-dum, right? The penny drops. Judah is uh, huffing and puffing in righteous indignation over the sin of his daughter-in-law. Oh, how dare she? And then it turns out like, oops, <laughs> I think I'm the one who messed up even more than Tamar. Uh, not only did he fail to give Tamar to his son, the next in line, but he assumed she was a prostitute, which means apparently Judah thought sleeping with prostitutes is okay too, which some of us would have issues with, I would think. Um, but in all of this odd way, Tamar becomes a member of the covenant people of Israel. Tamar becomes a great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. That's amazing. Yeah. And even though there's sin in that story and there's shame in that story and there's prostitution in that story, it's interesting how the intention of the story is to show that these stories are not clean. These stories are not neat. These stories are not perfect. But these are the things that are included in the scripture. And that gives me hope because my life is not squeaky clean either. I've had problems. I've had situations. And I realize that God still wants to use my story too. So Matthew puts Tamar in the story of Matthew 1. And we want to know what it means and if there's any application in our own lives in the appearance of the family tree. So we'll find that out in the next segment. So stay tuned. 
glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. And I'm Scott Jose. And I'm Daryl Delaney. And Daryl, at the end of most of our Groundwork programs, as at the end of sermons that you and I preach, you know, you sort of get to the part where you say, okay, so what? All right, so we've had Tamar included in Matthew's family tree of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1, verse 3. We've reviewed Tamar's story from Genesis 38. And as we were just saying, it would have been so easy to leave this story out, right? I mean, if you skipped from the end of Genesis 37, meanwhile, in Egypt, Joseph had been sold to someone named Potiphar. If the very next thing you read was Genesis 39, verse 1, where we hear the story of Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, you wouldn't have missed a thing. You wouldn't have missed a beat. Genesis 38 did not have to be there. How easy would it have been to leave it out, given how Bad Judah comes off looking in the story. One of the patriarchs of Israel, right? The tribe of Judah becomes the key tribe eventually. It would have been really easy to leave this out, but the author of Genesis didn't. And so why and so what? What's interesting to me, Scott, is that the issues of the text are not avoided or swept under the rug, so to speak, that these issues are actually brought into the forefront And it all connects to the genealogy of Jesus' family tree. Each woman has a story attached to her name, and these stories have some issues in them. And that is something that you're going to see every time we go through each of these stories. And the people that are not part of Israel, that have been brought from the outside in, they play an absolutely key role if they're in the bloodline Mm -hmm. of Jesus Christ. And so that's important that not only is the drama not ignored, but also that even though they have this stuff going on, they're still part of Jesus' bloodline. And it's interesting. So we just said the author of Genesis or the final editor of Genesis could have deleted this story and you'd never miss it. You'd never miss it. You would just stick with Joseph. It's the main drama anyway. But the author or editor of Genesis left it in for a reason. Matthew could have left Tamar out too, right? Wouldn't have missed it. Right. Judah's the father of Perez and, you know, what you didn't need to hear about Tamar. But even as the author of Genesis had a reason for keeping chapter 38 when he could have deleted it, Matthew had a reason. And, you know, uh, kind of with the exception of Ruth, these women, and again, we, we said we don't want anybody walking away from this series thinking we're saying women are the problem or women right. are the No, Tamar was a victim. Most of these women are victims of their societies, victims of the sins of men, right? But the stories attached to them are kind of like skeletons in Jesus' family closet. Yeah. Matthew didn't have to allude to them, but he does. Maybe, Daryl, because Matthew wants to remind us, you know what, stories like this, that's why Jesus came. Yes. <laughs> you can't even tell Jesus' story without telling sinful stories, and that's why Jesus came. 
why Jesus had to come to earth for our salvation. This is definitely the reason why he came. All of these stories have an element of sin in them, an element of challenge in them. And the reason why Jesus had to come to save us from all the penalties of these things is because of the drama in our lives, the things that we may or may not have caused. In Tamar's case and in some of these women's cases, they didn't cause these things. And so the reason why he had to come to deliver us from the sin and evil that you're seeing in these stories, it shows up even in his own story. So you can't even tell the story of how Jesus got here without having those drama and those issues and those things being explained. And maybe specifically uh, about Tamar and Judah, Daryl, another lesson. Well, maybe, maybe Judah and Tamar remind us of the grand truth we read in Romans 8. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Uh-huh. Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But no, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced neither death nor life. Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus our Lord. So could Judah's sin, could Tamar's sin, could this tawdry story separate them finally from the love of God? Paul says it loud for the people in the back. No, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God. Not no matter how much Judah messed up, no matter the problem that Tamar had faced through all of this and even forcing Judah to do the right thing. It's going to be dicey. It was dicey in in this picture. (laughs) It was really, really a problem. There's a sexual relationship that's inappropriate between family members. There's a problem there, (laughs) but that doesn't separate them from the love of God by no means. It can't cast them out of the family of God on a permanent basis because his love and his mercy somehow it works his way through these problems. That gives me hope because I have problems. I have situations that I have things that I'm not proud of this, the sins in, in my life. And somehow God's grace and mercy weaves its way through to get to my heart, to change me, to help me. And that's hopeful for anybody. And, you know, uh, Daryl, I don't know about you, if you've had this experience, but I know as a pastor, when I've done sermon series from the book of Genesis, and I don't skip Genesis 38. I don't skip the story, but you sort of get the you get vibes from the congregation oh, yeah. that they wish you had, right? And I did an Advent preaching series on the genealogy of Matthew, which means sermon number one was about Tamar. And I had some people kind of say, you know, we didn't really need to hear that. Our kids didn't need to hear that. What's that got to do with Advent? What's that got to do with Christmas? Come on, let's keep it, you know, all sparkly and tinselly and you know, you know how we like to glitz up Advent and Christmas. But God doesn't want us to do that because otherwise we lose the why of the birth in Bethlehem. We lose the reason Jesus had to come and be born in that way. I've been a part of churches in the past, Scott, where they want you to send a parental advisory a couple of weeks before you're going to actually preach something like this because they don't want their kids. They'll try to shelter their ears or dismiss them early or whatever to make sure that they don't hear all this stuff that they think is over their heads. But God does not shield us from the problems and the brokenness of our world and our lives. And we can't just glaze over it and sing joy to the world and kumbaya, whatever we want to sing. 
the drama is why Jesus came and he is the one that's trying to show us that even in his birth, even in his, his genealogy, Matthew is making it clear that it wasn't squeaky clean and neither are our lives either. Exactly. Yeah. Some of us have had the experience of suggesting that we celebrate communion. We celebrate the Eucharist, the Lord's Supper on Christmas Day. And people push back against that. It's like, he was just born. He's a little baby. Uh, look, we don't have to think about when he died. Why do you want to think about how he died on the day we're celebrating his birth? It's like, because that's why he was born, so he could die. You know, So people say, well, let's just sing Joy to the World and leave all this gross stuff out. Okay. But the third stanza of Joy to the World says, no more let thorns and sin infest the ground. And then God's saving love in Jesus will extend far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. So Jesus' birth at Christmas and, and all of our Advent expectations, Daryl, it's all about dealing with the raw reality of our human sin and Tamar's story reminds us of that, but it also reminds us that the real message of Christmas is that because of what Jesus has done, none of our sinfulness will have the last word in our lives. Only God's grace has the last word. Thanks be to God. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your host, Daryl Delaney with Scott Jose, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we continue the study of the women in Jesus' genealogy by looking at Rahab's story. Connect with us at GroundworkOnline.com to share what Groundwork means to you or to tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Ministries. Visit the website, ReframeMinistries.org, for more information. Our recording engineer is Don Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our senior producer is Courtney Jacob. <laughs>